know I started last week with a pyramid-shaped grave marker, but with your permission, I'd like to do it again. For most people, quartzite, sitting as it does some 20 miles from the California state line, is a place to stop and get cheap gas before heading further west, or they can branch off to head north to Lake Havasu or south to Yuma. But if you leave the highway and head toward the northwestern side of town, you will come upon a small graveyard. It's a dusty spot of land without the benefit of trees or really any other beautifying plants. There is what you would expect in a cemetery. The headstones, flowers, benches, small wrought iron gates around certain plots, and the rocky outlines of graves. But it's hard to miss the signs at the front, next to the large pyramid built of local native rocks that proclaims this to be the last camp of High Jolly. You'll even notice another nearby plaque that declares that the whole cemetery is named for High Jolly. But who was he? And why all the effort to recognize him? And what, pray tell, does the metal camel on top of his grave marker have to do with anything? Well, let me tell you, because like most of the state's history, it's quite the story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 31, High Jolly and Other Hijinks. Before we can get into High Jolly's story and the events surrounding his grave marker and quartzite, there are a few things I want to hit on first. Today is going to be sort of a grab bag episode as we look at a lot of loose threads that will eventually help us close out Arizona in the 1850s before going back next week and exploring the political machinations that were happening around the same time. We're getting to the point now where a lot of stuff is happening at once. Not that it wasn't before, but now I actually have detailed sources. So I apologize if at times it's hard to fit everything into one coherent narrative. Though really, that's exactly what reading history is like. We ended last week with Charles D. Poston's account of the first couple years of his mining operation at Tubac, which is quite frankly biased and may or may not entirely reflect reality. Remember, this is where we had that whole, we had no law but love quote. But as the Sonoran Mining and Exploration Company continued to operate, and Tubac became a population center, it did contribute one more important aspect to Arizona history. In 1858, company men John and William Wrightson bought a Washington printing press in Cincinnati and had it transported to Tubac. On March 3, 1859, editor Edward E. Cross used this press to print the first edition of The Weekly Arizonian, the first newspaper to be printed in the state. That first paper was only four pages long and consisted of a mix of news, editorials, and advertisements. I have a replica of the first edition of the paper, and it's mainly concerned with the ongoing political turmoil in Sonora and news of other mines in the area. 
The Weekly Arizonian will only print in Tubac for a matter of months, before being bought and moved to Tucson by August 1859. The Washington Press itself would have quite the ride, as it will print both the first pamphlet and the first book produced in the state, and go on to print papers in Tucson, Florence, and Tombstone. Eventually, more than a century after its arrival, the press would be restored and put on display at the Tubac Presidio State Historic Park. As a former newspaper man, I find this all fascinating, and fair warning, I have vague plans to do a newspaper-centric bonus episode at some point in the future. But then, I've always been a little geeky about such things, so for now, we'll note the printing of Arizona's first newspaper and move on. To complement Poston's rosy recounting of the past, I want to turn to state historian Thomas Sheridan, who takes a much dimmer view of the company town. He describes the operation as typical adventures at the time, which is to say, quote, a volatile mixture of ambition, promotion, and exaggeration that promised much more than it delivered, end quote. Sheridan says that Poston's gift was in self-promotion, but he couldn't exactly follow it up in his actual business dealings. He allowed his men to open too many mines without really developing any of them, and never completed planned smelting works in Aravaca. And despite continuing to pull out rich silver ore, the business started hemorrhaging money. Samuel Heiselman, Poston's business partner who was always trying to drum up new investors back east, wrote in his journal, quote, Mr. Poston has done very well in many things, but is not the man to manage this business now after it has assumed this shape. He has that southern or Kentucky slovenliness of doing business, end quote. Apologies to any Southerners or Kentuckians out there. That's literally what he wrote. The company would be hit by the nationwide financial panic of 1857, which Poston doesn't even mention in his writings, which would cause debts to pile up and mining work to come to a crawl. Meanwhile, Heiselman was able to persuade Samuel Colt, yes, that Samuel Colt, to invest $10,000 in the operation. However, as things continued to go south, Colt would seize control of the company and try to improve the business, but without railroads to more efficiently haul ore out, it was a losing game. Despite all this, the company would last into the early 1860s, so it's not like it died right away. Aside from faulty business operation, Sheridan points out that Poston and Heinzelman never really understood their workforce, which was overwhelmingly Mexican. By 1860, only one-tenth of the 231 men living at Tubac had not been born in Mexico or locally to Mexican families. In the farther-flung mining camps, roughly 70% of the workforce was Mexican. The German workers and the American upper management did not understand Mexican customs very well and complained about laziness and unreliability when their workforce would either take time off in August to attend the Festival of San Agustin in Tucson or in October to head to Magdalena in Sonora for the Festival of San Francisco. Even Poston, for all his paternalism, writes that, quote, The men of northern Mexico 
are far inferior to the women in every respect. End quote. This view of inferiority was borne out in the pay scales. Sheridan quotes mining engineer Rafael Pumpelli, who claimed that a Mexican worker received $12 to $17 a month, while an American doing the exact same job received between $30 and $70 a month. Race relations were not helped any by the fallout from the Crab Expedition, which upset more than a few settlers in southern Arizona. Remember that Crab was mostly seen as a hero in the U.S., a noble businessman who had been betrayed by a treacherous Sonoran official. So some of the more unruly folk took it upon themselves to punish any Mexican they could find, even if they were hired hands legally working for American landowners. Poston even recounts that the very Mexican commander who had saved that 16-year-old boy who was the sole survivor of the massacre was himself nearly mobbed at Tucson. And American managers tended to come down particularly hard on Mexican workers. That abuse, you know, coupled with unfair wages and hazardous working conditions, caused strikes and walkouts, contributing to the American view that the Mexicans were shiftless and unreliable. At several points, according to Sheridan, this cycle, quote, drove southern Arizona to the brink of ethnic war, end quote. For example, on May 1st, 1859, a ranch foreman named George Mercer took it upon himself to whip and shave the heads of seven of his Mexican workers. Just a few days later, a friend of Mercer's was killed at his ranch near Tumacacri. Mercer became convinced that it was the Mexicans paying him back for his abuses, so he gathered up a small band with the goal of driving every last Mexican from the area. To that end, they rode into the Sonoida Valley and, chancing upon a mescal distillery, killed the four Mexicans and one Yaqui man working there. News of the Sonoida massacre spread quickly and mine owners watched their available labor pool dry up as Mexicans fled south to the relative safety of Sonora. Under such conditions, they had to condemn Mercer just so they could keep operating. Eventually, the Mexican workers returned, and the uneasy peace continued. Sheridan writes that in the late 1850s and early 1860s, we have records showing that Mexicans killed 25 people, while in the same period, Americans killed 39, 23 of which were Mexican. Believe me when I say that we are not done talking about the uneasy labor situation of Americans and Mexicans by a long shot. But while there was so much disorder among the mines and their workers, a new type of order was starting to appear on the scene. The U.S. Army, now taking over full command of the Gadsden Purchase, began moving in soldiers and establishing small forts to protect the country's investment and all these new American settlers. In the fall of 1857, a company of dragoons established Camp Buchanan, just west of present-day Sonoida off of State Route 82. This company actually first stopped in Tucson earlier that year, where the commanding officer, Major Enoch Steen, was not really impressed with what he saw. Perhaps with some persuasion from Poston, Steen set up a temporary base called Camp Moore at Calabasas, where he rented land that was part of Gondra's sheep ranch. 
Steen was at this post during and after the Crab Massacre and would be one of the officials who investigated exactly what went down at Kaborka. However, the Calabasa site was never approved by his superiors, and he was requested to find another location, perhaps, you know, closer to Tucson. But for reasons that are not entirely clear, Steen did not want to be anywhere near the old Pueblo, and so he chose the site on Sonoida Creek for Fort Buchanan. This army outpost is additionally responsible for the arrival of freight wagons to the area. Now that the army could, in theory at least, guarantee protection from raiding Apache. It's only due to their presence that Poston was able to freight some of his silver to Kansas City, which we talked about last week. Another army post, Fort Breckenridge, was built near the junction of the San Pedro River and Aravipa Creek in 1859. In a few years, this will be renamed Camp Grant and be the future scene of a horrible massacre of Apaches. Finally, I will mention the founding of Fort Mojave, near the community of the same name in northwestern Arizona, in 1858. And remember that these are in addition to Fort Defiance, established in Navajo Territory in 1851, which I briefly mentioned in episode 25, and Fort Yuma along the Colorado. Most of these forts are notable only for their establishment. In a few short years, most will be abandoned as the Civil War breaks out. Though they will eventually be reestablished, the pulling out of troops gave some settlers cause to give up on the U.S. Army altogether and look toward the Confederacy as a potential protector. But we are still a little bit out from that. Along with the U.S. Army post now springing up, that other clear sign of government oversight, the Postal Service, begins making itself known during this time. In 1857, the first charter for a mail line, which would carry passengers as well as letters, across to Arizona was approved. James Birch, who had made a fortune from running stagecoaches during the gold rush, was awarded the $600,000 government contract to get people and things between San Antonio and San Diego. Most people were actually not happy about the chosen route, and one newspaper man in California dismissively said the line went, quote, from no place, through nothing, to nowhere, end quote. This line ran twice a month and would cost $200 a person, which included food and carrying along 30 pounds of luggage. So basically what $200 will get you today for a cheap airplane trip. However, stage riding was not for the faint of heart. It was a 30-day trip, assuming things were running on time and only three of the line's 87 stations had any real amenities. When the stage would pull into a station for the night, people slept in what amounted to be brush and mud hovels with dirt floors. The food was questionable at best, and the line's response to complaints was to hand over plenty of mustard to mask the flavor. The company even soon developed the nickname Jackass Mail, because in the sand dunes east of Yuma, passengers had to unload from the stagecoach and climb onto mules in order for both them and the coach to keep moving forward. The Jackass Mail folded quickly, and a new operation, the Butterfield Overland Mail, took over in 1858. The Butterfield Overland Mail, named for owner John Butterfield, 
was a subsidized mail line between Tipton, Missouri and San Francisco. It was dubbed the Oxbow because the route dipped down to El Paso, through Tucson and Los Angeles before swinging up to San Francisco. Where this line really shined, though, was in its efficiency. One 2,800-mile ride would only take 26 days to complete because the coach would go day and night. Stations were spaced roughly 15 to 20 miles apart, and when a coach was within two miles of a station, it would blow a bugle to alert them of their arrival and to have a fresh team of horses ready. Stops were usually only 10 minutes, enough time to hitch the new team and maybe allow passengers to use the facilities, and to deliver any mail. Unfortunately, the food wasn't that much better on this line, and chilies and mustard were provided again to make things more palatable. According to state historian Marshall Trimble, to break up the monotony of travel, more than a few passengers turned to liquor, discarding empty bottles by tossing them out the window. Years later, pilots claimed they could easily see and follow the trail of glass left by these passengers. The Butterfield Overland Mail worked remarkably well for four years, but eventually had to suspend operations once the U.S. Army pulled out in 1861. Elsewhere, big things were also happening. In 1858, a man named Jacob Snively was panning for gold on the Gila River, roughly 25 miles upstream of Yuma. Snively had been born in Pennsylvania, but had moved to Texas in the early 1830s, where he became embroiled in the independence movement. You might recall from way back in episode 20, I mentioned that while it was still an independent country, Texas tried to claim a portion of the Santa Fe Trail and even sent men to collect tolls from merchants. Well, Snively was not only part of that group, but the one in charge of it. Anyway, after the Mexican-American War, he drifted to California, New Mexico, and eventually Arizona. And it was here on the Gila that he found something shiny at the bottom of his pan. News of the discovery spread like wildfire, and in the words of early state historian James H. McClintock, quote, he had a hundred helpers within a month, end quote. The spot turned out to be Arizona's first real boomtown and was dubbed Gila City. Within a year, it was estimated that more than a thousand people were living there, all with the hopes of making it rich in gold panning or making it rich off the people hoping to make it rich in gold panning. Contemporary journalist J. Ross Brown said, quote, The earth was turned inside out. Rumors of extraordinary discoveries flew on the wings of the wind in every direction. There was everything in Gila City within a few months, but a church and a jail, which were accounted barbarisms by the mass of the population. End quote. Sylvester Mowry, a fellow Arizona mine owner who I swear we're going to talk about one of these days, visited Gila City in 1859, about a year after Snively's discovery. He claimed to have watched as unpracticed miners were able to get $20 worth of gold out of eight shovelfuls of dirt. Others were raking in $30 to $125 in gold a day, he said. However, Sheridan remarks that, in the end, Gila City was like other boom towns. A few lucky souls made a killing, 
while others managed to just eke out a living while paying for basic necessities at vastly inflated prices. Then there was the character of the town, as the loose atmosphere brought in a lot of undesirables. McClintock writes, quote, It is said to have been a veritable hell on earth, with the gathered human scum of the Southwest come to prey on the gold diggers. End quote. Like most boomtowns, Gila City just couldn't survive once gold stopped being plentiful. In 1862, after people stopped striking it rich, the Gila River also flooded, destroying much of the three-year-old settlement. When Brown returned to the site in 1864, he commented, quote, The promising metropolis of Arizona consisted of three chimneys and a coyote. End quote. A year before Snively made his discovery and set off the rush to Gila City, southern Arizona also experienced the last great conflict between native tribes in the area. The Quechans, allying themselves with the Mojave and Yavapai, rode 160 miles through the desert to carry out an attack on two Maricopa villages on the eastern side of the Estrella Mountains. I can't find any given reason for the attack, but it could be any number of reasons the tribes may have given each other going back to time immemorial. What is known is that the attack occurred on September 1st, 1857. The Quechans were able to burn some adobe huts and kill a handful of women and children. However, the Maricopa were quick to strike back with their own allies, the Akamel and Tohono O'odham. Striking out on horseback, they were able to catch up with the raiding Quechans west of the present city of Maricopa and kill more than 100 of the raiders. Early state historian Thomas Farish adds that only three Quechan warriors actually returned to the Colorado River. And this ignominious defeat would be the last major battle the Quechans would fight. After that little bit of depressing history, it's time to lighten things up a bit as we return to where we started today. Who was High Jolly, and why does he get a fancy tomb in Quartzsite? To answer that, we have to turn to Lieutenant Edward Fitzgerald Beale. A little unusual for our subjects, Beale is not an army lieutenant, but rather earned his rank in the U.S. Navy. He had made a name for himself in the Navy as a bright young man who could be trusted with some sensitive and or diplomatic missions. He had even been the one to carry official dispatches about the discovery of gold in California to Washington, D.C. By the mid-1850s, he had left the service behind, taking up positions as a surveyor and the superintendent of Indian Affairs for California and Nevada. He was even made a general in the California State Militia, though most sources still refer to him as Lieutenant Beale. In 1857, President James Buchanan tapped him to lead an expedition for the Army's Corps of Topographical Engineers and to build a wagon road between Fort Defiance and the Colorado River. This route would go along the 35th parallel, much like Aubrey, Sitgreaves, and Whipple before him. What sets Bill's surveying of a wagon road apart is that his expedition was part of a great experiment happening under the auspices of the U.S. Department of War at the time, namely the use of camels to traverse American deserts. Now, the idea of using camels in the New World had actually been dreamed up by the Spanish when they were still in charge of things, and a couple times they actually tried it, 
though these experiments were short-lived and didn't really go anywhere. Fast forward to the 1850s, when the Transcontinental Railroad was still just a dream, and there was a lot of talk about how to best transport goods and people across the trackless west with all its hazards. The idea of using camels had been bandied about for years, and even our old friend and sometimes on-task Boundary Commissioner John Russell Bartlett urged their use while reporting about his time along the southern border. All this talk eventually reached the ears of one Jefferson Davis, and when he served as Secretary of War for President Franklin Pierce in 1853, he pushed for their use, citing their valuable role in the old world and how that could translate to the deserts of the new. For example, a single camel can carry between 600 and 800 pounds. Three of them together could do the work of six mules. They required less water than horses and mules and could subsist on desert plants. They also didn't require shoeing and could travel through rocky country that would injure the feet and ankles of horses and mules. And finally, they were simply faster, beating out mules or wagon trains. In 1855, Davis was able to get $30,000 in congressional funding for the project and entrusted Major C. Henry Wayne, who had been pushing for the idea since the late 1840s, and Lieutenant David D. Porter, later an admiral during the Civil War, with sailing to Africa and the Middle East to round up animals. After visiting Cairo, Smyrna, and other locations, this expedition returned to the U.S. in 1856 with 33 camels, with most being the Bactrian, or two-humped variety, and a few lighter dromedary, or one-humped camels. Wayne and Porter also made sure to buy a lot of camel saddles while in the Middle East, correctly guessing that American-made ones wouldn't be as good. Despite the scoffing of the Texans who first saw them, the camels seemed to prove their worth, and in early 1857, Wayne made another trip to secure more of them. In his report about the wagon route he broke, Bill is nothing but flattering about the use of camels. Early state historian Thomas Farish writes that Bill found that the camels could carry heavy loads over passes that mules found difficult, and they would swim across rivers with ease and without any hesitation. They were particularly good on rocky ground that was volcanic in nature and prone to being scattered with sharp rocks. On one stretch, Bill wrote that even his dogs could only go a short distance before begging to be let into the wagon. But he also wrote, quote, The camels, on the contrary, had not evinced the slightest distress or soreness. And this is remarkable, as mules and horses in a very short time get sore-footed that shoes are indispensable. End quote. Even with these fantastic beasts, it still took 48 days to break his wagon route, which led from Fort Defiance to the Zuni Pueblos before heading to Navajo Springs just southwest of modern Chambers and I-40 and skirting the south end of the San Francisco Peaks. Part of the reason it took so long is that the guide Bill hired in Albuquerque turned out to not really know the area that well. Of the route he had come, he wrote, quote, I presume there can be no further question as to the practicality of the country near the 35th parallel for a wagon road, since Aubrey, Whipple, and myself have all traveled it successfully with the wagon, neither of us in precisely the same line, and yet through very much the same country. End quote. 
He does recommend that a bridge be built across Canyon Diablo and a few other improvements to straighten and shorten the route, but overall, quote, the road needs scarcely any other improvements than a few bridges, end quote. As for the camels, though Bill was impressed with their overall performance, there were several issues. First, the men hated working with the stubborn animals, whose breath was wretched and had a tendency to spit at things, or people, that annoyed them. The large beasts also spooked horses and mules, making it impossible to have equines and camels near each other. Finally, Americans were just inexperienced with handling camels. As state historian Marshall Trimble so poetically put it, quote, the mule skinners couldn't speak Arabic, and the stubborn beast wouldn't learn English, end quote. And it's this last problem that finally brings us to High Jolly. He was born Philip Tedro in Smyrna in 1828 to a Greek mother and a Syrian father. After converting to Islam, he changed his name to Haji Ali and became, wait for it, a camel breeder and trainer. You also see it reported that he served in the French army in Algiers. When the Americans showed up asking for camels and those with camel know-how, Haji Ali volunteered to travel to the U.S., and it's here that he takes on the moniker of High Jolly, as the Americans commonly mispronounced his name. He is the most famous of eight men who joined the U.S. Camel Corps and would lead his camels between Texas and California. Unfortunately, despite men like High Jolly and his associates, the other problems with the camels could not be overcome, especially the way they scared the living bejesus out of horses and mules. So when the Civil War broke out, money was tight, and Congress wasn't that willing to continue the program, especially as it had been championed by the man now leading the Confederacy. So what became of the animals? Well, some went with High Jolly. Some were eventually purchased by Beale for his private property. Some were sold at auction. But a large number of them were just left in the desert to fend for themselves. Seriously, they just cut them loose and let them go. And for years, there were reports of wild camels roaming southern Arizona, particularly around Gila Bend. Farish recounts that in the 1870s, a couple of Frenchmen rounded up some to use in Nevada. He then relays reports of wild camel sightings from 1879, 1881, and 1913. Heck, I even found an Associated Press report from the 1940s, where an interviewee said he was going to track down wild camels that were said to still be out there. As for High Jolly, he continued with the army until receiving his discharge in 1870 at Fort McDowell along the Salt River. He, and his camels, would try running a freighting business for several years, though he was never really successful at it. He would also try his hand at mining, scouting, and selling water to thirsty travelers. In 1880, he even became an American citizen, changed his name back to Philip Tedro, and would marry a woman in Tucson. He would help the army as a mule driver during the campaigns against Geronimo in the late 1880s, and eventually retired to Quartzsite, where he died in 1902. His last camp would be dedicated in 1935 by Arizona Governor Benjamin Moore. You can check out photos I took recently of his grave marker on the podcast website, 
azhistorypodcast.com. If you can't make it out to Quartzsite to see it in person, it's the next best thing. Inspired by the dedication of this grave marker, the town of Quartzsite set up the High Jolly Cemetery to serve as the final resting spot for many of the community's founders. Quartzsite also now has set up a more modern section for anyone who wishes to be interred in the town. Beale, High Jolly, and the Camels are a colorful part of Arizona history from this period, and to me a must-have in any recollection of the state's past. Except there is one problem. You see, there really is no such thing as Arizona history at this point. Because what we know as Arizona today wasn't its own territory or really have its own identity at this time. Not yet, at least. But join me next week as a group of men decided that they wanted to change that and started lobbying the government to split them off from New Mexico and let them be their own thing. A thing that they will call Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.